0: I think what happened was, you know, I was suddenly single and I thought, okay, do I actually want to be back in a relationship? I didn't really want to get back into a great big tangle. Um so I had a couple of dates with various folk um before I hooked up with Mark and it was sort of excruciating. Oh the decision about what underwear you're gonna wear. Oh god. Everything in my drawer was nice and big and a little bit grey and when you date someone you've yep. got to wear other stuff mm-hmm. um and then I thought why am I doing that who have I become
1: that is the voice of the deliciously likeable Dawn French my favorite knight of the realm from whom we'll be hearing much more in a moment and this is how to wow how to Today's episode is brought to you firstly by the Sunday Times Life Lessons with added how to wow for which tickets go on sale this Wednesday the 9th of December at 8am or if you're listening to this a little later than that, tickets are now on sale and hopefully almost sold out but give it a go anyway at lifelessonsfestival.com that's lifelessonsfestival.com Life Lessons was an instant hit earlier this year, indoors at the Barbican when it was still winter so hopefully next year it will be an absolute smash as we're holding it outdoors at the amazing Chiswick House in early spring. Our three day inspirational festival is back for its second year in 2021 from Friday, May 14th to Sunday, May 16th with wise words and super intelligent wit and wisdom from a sparkling lineup of speakers, including Graham Norton, Catelyn Moran, Ruby Wax, Dr. and Chatterjee, Bernadine Evaristo, Briony Gordon, Kimberly Wilson, Professor Robert Thomas, Kate Humble, Jay Blades, Alif Shafak, Majid Majid, and many, many more. There'll be talks, interviews, workshops, classes, tens of thousands. Thousands of books and exhibitors, plus some very special food and drink available to keep you fueled and fired up all day long. Plus, we'll be recording our first ever How to Wow live podcast with the likes of, he's already booked, Professor Brian Cox and Simon Reeve. I honestly can't wait and I'd love to see you there. There's never been a more apt time to consider rebooting and rethinking our lives together in the presence of great thinkers such as the crew that are going to be attending Life Lessons with added How to Wow. As I say, tickets are on sale from Wednesday, the 9th of December at lifelessonsfestival.com and this episode is also brought to you by our friends at Athletic Greens by the way I've run out of mine seriously Brett Brett where's the order I'm going to have to order it myself for my own podcast Every morning, Tash, my wife, and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy recovery, immunity, and digestion. I've been on it for about four weeks now, and I feel genuinely different my skin is smoother, I love a nap in the day, I don't always get to have one, but now if I don't somehow, it feels okay. You know, it could be a placebo effect, but I don't think it is. Well, whichever way I look at it, I think Athletic Greens is working for me. A deep seaweed green like Nature itself, this eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six. Okay, ten tops. Do prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous. After hearing my go-to wellness wise guys go on about Athletic Greens for years, you know Rich Roll and the likes of Tim Ferriss, you know you know the names I'm talking about. I've been on my own Athletic Greens journey now with my wife for about four weeks, and honestly, honestly, I'm convinced it's made a difference. I always, always hankered for a nap in the afternoons, you know, and I still I still try and get like an hour of lying down, you know. I actually lie down on the rug on the floor in the living room because it grounds me but over the last month if I've missed out on my hour which sometimes I do it doesn't come back to bite me at tea time with the kids when it usually does it feels all right. I mean I still want it I don't know if it's a placebo effect but honestly um, I just feel different my skin feels smoother I'm thinking more clearly I don't know, I don't know, but give it a go. Deep seaweed green like nature herself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six, okay, ten tops in our house, to prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day again simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow okay and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal athletic greens have given how to wow listeners a free year's supply of vitamin d and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go once again athletic greens.com slash don't forget how to wow athleticgreenscom slash how to wow get your free year supply of vitamin d and five free travel packs today all right that's the housekeeping out of the way that's how we get this podcast on the air thanks to life Lessons festival.com and athletic greens so it's time to bring on the main event today the wonderful dawn french The number of subjects we get through here is quite incredible and she is so giving, as always, and she's so wise, as always, and she's so nice. She's just like the nicest person in the world. Cue the conversation. That's it. Okay, okay.
0: I'm I'm here. I'm ready whenever you are.
1: So, French sounds like she's got a man in. (laughs) Who's your man?
0: My man is Neil Redding, who goes with me everywhere when there's when there's evil out on the horizon (laughs) lurking to trip me up.
1: (laughs) So do you want to shag Keir Starmer or do you just think he's good for labour? Oh, I think he's good for
0: labour. I I wouldn't say no. uh, But I I, well, I probably would say no, because, look, I'm married. But uh, And he's a very attractive man, but that's not the point. He's going to do the business. That's what I think is is good about it. And he's fair
1: and clever. Because we had um, Dame Judy on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she said she wanted to shag him. Did she? Yeah. Hey, I'd pay to watch that. Um, no, because he is an attractive man, isn't he? There's no doubt about it. He's impressive and he's attractive. and Maybe he's in tra- attractive because he's impressive and vice versa.
0: Yeah, he just he just seems to be a kind of voice of reason, but he's 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 statuesque, he's a solid man of substance, and he's bright, like you say, yeah. I don't know how funny he is. We, we'd have to find that out.
1: To be honest, she didn't say she wanted to shake him. I think she said she wanted to have a cup of tea with him.
0: So you've just lied and tried to trip me up. <laughs> Neil no, ready? Call, call the PR police now. I didn't now. try and trip you up. Just... That, did you hear what he managed to get me to admit? <laughs> I wanted to shag him because Judy did. And then Judy never said that.
1: Outrageous. Uh, totally outrageous. Unbelievable. Um, you ha- you have said, haven't you, about Keir Starmer that, you know, you really do give a shit about him. Um, and um, it's been a while. Has there been another politician that you you went out on a limb for like him, or is he the first, or is he just the most required now in your mind?
0: Uh, gone out on a limb? Do you mean put given my support to? Is that what you mean?
1: Well, yeah, because you say you say, don't you? It, you know, you've you've said that you can get a lot of flack for this kind of stuff, so it's got to be worth yeah. it. So when was the last time that happened?
0: Oh well, the last time I was putting my faith in a, in a politician there wasn't such a thing as Twitter I don't think then and and I suppose what I was referring to is the fact that if you if you mention politics on Twitter suddenly everything catches fire and it's all it can get very unpleasant and all the trolls come out and it, it, for me Twitter is not really the right arena for that kind of conversation so I'm not interested in having a political conversation in soundbites like that so uh, I realise that to do it is is dangerous. Um, but yeah, I you know I was a big uh, Blair fan. Um, I still am in some ways, you know, with mistakes taken into account. Um, on an overall legacy, I, I I'm still a a, a Blair fan. Um, I was a Gordon Brown fan. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, there's been many in the in the Labour Party that I've approved of.
1: Yeah, I think Keir has just changed things, hasn't he? Because he's the opposite of Johnson. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Because they can't really get it together on Question Time because they, you know, one's playing hockey and the other one's playing rugby. They've not agreed. Well,
0: yeah, but and one does doesn't turn up. I yeah. mean, so you know, it, yeah, it's difficult. Plus, there's something else. There's a we've got a um, a combined enemy at the moment. So neither of them really can. I I saw that Keir very carefully waited till he could start um, needling away at Johnson about mistakes that have been made. Because for a while, he just decided not to do that because it would frighten everyone. And we had um, bigger fish to fry, if you like. And I noticed he did that in his own campaign, actually, when he was standing there with the uh, other two women, you know, that were running. um, And he just said, let's not snipe at each other. Let's just go on our own merits. And I, I like that about him. That doesn't seem to be the modern way, and he's doing the old-fashioned way where you don't um, undercut each other so badly. It's so, it's so um, childish, really.
1: I was going to say he's a bit more grown-up, is what we're trying to say. He is. This. He seems he's, to be grown-up. He's yeah. a bit more yeah. grown-up, unlike yeah. us, us pair. It's funny, isn't yeah. it, Cause you've because you've had your own... Uh, sort of polar opposite COVID experiences because obviously you've got your place in Cornwall which is where you live and then you've been COVID compliant whilst making a movie um, and then Cornwall had it really tough now as we sit here today on the last day of November 2020 um, Cornwall is celebrating being one of only two places in the whole of the UK in tier one
0: yeah forgive me for being smug But uh
1: yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And even and it's even Tier One considering that, you know, there was an influx from the every single other person in the country seemed to turn up in Cornwall in the summer. Understandably. Understand nobody was allowed to travel abroad. So everyone came to the most beautiful place, and that is Cornwall. But listen, Cornwall needed that in the summer and did good business from tourists in the summer and and Uh, And I'm really glad that that happened. Uh, But even despite that, and that is um, for the Cornish, that's the biggest fear is we have a small hospital and it will not cope with um, any big problems as a result of loads more people arriving. Uh, but it didn't happen, so people were respectful and it and it worked out fine. Yeah, it's good.
1: In, in many ways, you're sort of the the bridge between Cornish folk and um, you know uh, out of townies because you're because you're not Cornish, but you you are adopted because you've been there for so long, haven't you? Now,
0: well, it's weird because my uh, I've got one granny who was Cornish, yeah, and one granny who was from Devon. So, you know, the Tamar goes between the two and it's like the War of the Roses. You know, it's the Lancashire-Yorkshire divide is the same with Devon and Cornwall. And um, so I do have Cornish heritage, actually, on one side. And then I've spent a lot of my life in Cornwall because my dad was stationed um, um, at, oh gosh, now, um, RAF St. Morgan, down near Wadebridge. And so quite a lot of my childhood was in Cornwall as well. So. I feel like that's where I'm from as much as any REF person can be from anywhere because you move all the time. That I, you know, half my family is from Cornwall and the other half are from Devon. It's basically that.
1: There's so much to talk to you about, Dawn. So what we're going to do here, if you don't mind, it's called How to Wow. So we're going to mine the experiences of of Dawn French and her life to hopefully come up with some experiential gold um, to to guide people, to help them uh, with uh, reflective experiences in theirs, you know, and with some dilemmas. But I was going to start the interview off. I couldn't resist the Keir, Keir Starmer question but i was gonna
0: yeah well that's fine uh, <laughs> yeah, i was gonna
1: i was gonna start off with so dawn french you spent um your childhood in the raf because you were basically in the raf weren't you
0: yeah i mean if you're born as an raf kid that that's you you're raf <laughs> and you have a ferocious uh loyalty to it i still do now the raf is regarded as the senior service chris <laughs> Um, and much as we like the Army and the Navy, yeah. we are the best, as simple as that.
1: <laughs> well, and, you know,
0: Jennifer, you know, Jennifer's also an REF kid. Yeah, and...
1: exactly. And that's one of the reasons
0: you bonded, wasn't it? I think so, because um, it might have been it might have been OK if she was in the army or something. I mean, there would have been a nomadic kind of uh, shared experience, I guess. But there's something about the REF. you know, her dad wore a similar uniform to my dad. And you know they had they had a, a same sort of experience. We lived on the same camps. That we lived on the actual same camps. Occasionally, there was a moment when Jennifer and I were working together, and we were talking about this is when we were very young in our twenties, and we were talking about friends that we had, and we realised that we had shared the same friend who was an army brat uh, called Camilla Leng, and she. Jennifer had been on a camp, on an REF camp, and she'd been Jennifer's friend. Then Jennifer had moved off that camp and gone to another camp, and I'd moved into that camp, and she became my friend. So we had exactly the same friend on exactly the same camp within a couple of years of each other in our childhoods. You know, there were things like that that unite you uh, as REF kids.
1: Yeah, and the thing was you got to go to private school. And I always thought... You had, but I didn't realise why. Um, yeah. And, and but you, and there was a bit of imposter syndrome going on there, wasn't there?
0: Well, very definitely. Um, you know, the REF pay for you to go to boarding school because they know that your parents are going to be moving. Sometimes every three months, sometimes every six months, sometimes every year, but they're going to be moving. So the REF concede that you can't have any constancy in your. Education, unless they put you in a boarding school. And uh, for my family, this was very posh. Nobody in my family's ever been to boarding school before. No one's ever been to public school before. We went to whatever local junior schools, uh, wherever my dad was based. And I think I went to seven or eight of those and moved around a lot and felt very insecure about it, made friends and then had to lose them very quickly and make new friends. And it was all very. you know, it's it, to uproot kids like that so often It, it, it is frightening and difficult uh, and it makes for a certain kind of person. But um, yeah, when it comes to your secondary education, there's no way you're going to be able to get an education if you keep moving so often. Yeah. So, so the REF paid for you to go. And so I went to a, a school in Plymouth called St Dunstan's Abbey, which is a minor public school, but very friendly school. It had, had been a convent before um sort of in the, in the annals of history um but was no longer had any nuns or anything but had cloisters and a chapel and all of that and a very friendly um uh faculty there and and very friendly girls but it did mean that I stayed there at night and it was very odd and my parents found it very odd isn't we're not from a family where this is what you've done is get rid of the kids um <laughs> as soon as you can you know that's not where we're from at all so my 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 mum who was in just in floods of tears every time i had to go off would let my dad be the one who took us because he was the tougher one but then my dad would be in floods of tears every time they dropped us off i knew that i wasn't being dumped there i knew they thought this was some massive um privilege that i was allowed to go there and the same was happening for my brother at a boys school up the road
1: i mean you know d- on the face of it, that's a very turbulent childhood, isn't it? So peripatetic it and some up to the age of 11 and then, you know, full-on boarding school from one extreme to the other. Just going back to, to sort of um, primary school years, because you were, you set you sort of, let's keep the RAF uh, metaphor going, you were parachuted into various schools for sometimes, <laughs> as, as, as you know, as briefly as three months. Did you get the gist of the rhythm of that and then realise, you know, to be honest, I'm just guest starring here. I'm not going to be here for long. You know, <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Well,
0: uh, because I suppose I don't think I thought ahead like that. And I don't think it even became familiar. I think what I did was everywhere I arrived, I thought, right, I've got to make these kids my friends. Otherwise, they could destroy me. So here we go. I'm going to put on the big fireworks display. Here we go. I'm going to be the funniest girl in the class. (laughs) I'm going to be the the nicest girl to know. I'm going to be the most generous. I'll buy everybody sweets. You know, I'll do anything <laughs> to make these girls my friends. Oh, hooray, I've got friends. Oh, now we're going, bye. Um, and you would also arrive at schools where you realise that some of the kids in that school, because they were used to the RAF camp being nearby, would purposely exclude you because you were an RAF kid, because they knew that it wasn't going to be for long. So and they were the ones who had the the hang of it, not us. So I was aware that I was in this minority of people desperate for the attention, desperate for the popularity. It was exhausting, to be honest. And we used to my myself and my brother used to sleepwalk a lot. My mum said we were quite um yeah, we were quite disturbed by it, I think.
1: It sounds exhausting, to be honest, as you recount it. And it's it's interesting about, you know, you know, not not desperate to be popular, but desperate desperate to be liked, or it would make your life easy to be liked, and he wouldn't wouldn't want to be liked anyway. And when you think about or at least when I think about my favorite comedians, you know, I I tend to to like like being made to laugh by the people I like in the first place, and I know that you were a big fan yeah. of, huge fan of Eric Morecambe. Now, you know, Eric Morecambe was undoubtedly hilarious, but if you watch Morecambe and Why shows back now, um, you know, this the. The um the skits they weren't the sharpest things. You just thought he was a nice bloke. He was just a funny bloke, and you know that's what I think about you, Dawn. I mean, you're you're really genuinely genuinely funny, but I love you anyway. So oh, bless you. you. You know, you <laughs> had me at hello. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Oh well, that's nice to know. I would never compare myself to Eric, and I be and I'm very flattered to be compared in that way. But I do know what you mean by the fact that you know when it came to Malcolm and Wise, my family would sit together to watch them and the flood of love that we had for them was huge. I never questioned just how funny it was because I just knew we were laughing. I think you're right. There is something about Eric that I think I equated with a kind of the kind of uncle or dad yep. you'd like to have. He's just friendly, inclusive. Nothing's going to offend you. Nothing's going to, it's cheeky. Um, And you know, they're trying their hardest to be twits. You know that maybe that sketch wasn't as funny as it could be. But the way that Eric winked at the camera or the way he (laughs) walked or the way he included you on the joke against Ernie or whatever, you know, it was friendly, if you like. I've never been a massive fan of the cruel comedy. Yeah. Although I I will fight to the death for the right for people to do it (laughs) isn't that it's weird really isn't it because I'm aware that many people do like that more edgy spiky stuff but I find that's a bit like mm, it feels a bit like the bullies in sixth form common rooms you know they and usually it's boys I have to say sadly you know who have to have to flex their muscles and be more unkind than the boy before or uh, feel some kind of power um uh, uh, by being clever enough to take the piss out of people who might not be able to defend themselves much that doesn't make me laugh as much because i'm uncomfortable with it because i don't quite understand where the power is i don't like it it doesn't feel inclusive it doesn't feel friendly or cheerful to me but like i say uh i i want our comedy landscape to have everybody in it and I, you know i'm not the only kind of audience so you know those people should be allowed to perform alongside people like us
1: yeah you so you fight for the right for somebody to have the right to offend you and then you also defend your own right to be offended by them
0: yes exactly yeah i mean i i never really want to offend particularly i'm never set out to offend but i do want to challenge people a bit but there are comedians who do want to offend that's their that's almost their tally they you know that that that's their tariff. They they love it when they can uh, knock up another offended person and or sort of blame you for being offended. Now, so long as there's not hate in it, um, and again, it's a fine old line, isn't it? Um, if if I if I smell that there's hate or bullying in somebody's comedy, I'm just not laughing. I just can't help it. It's not making me laugh. I'm just thinking, oh God, that guy is not very kind. Uh, that's not a very nice person. And I think this goes back to what you were saying earlier. If you liked Eric because already you thought, "Oh, I like this man. This is a this is a generous, kind, friendly chap." Yeah. Um. Th- then you you relax a little bit and you might even let that person uh, take the mick out of you quite a lot because you feel safe <laughs> in their company.
1: That's you know. And look,
0: look at look at of Dibley. Yeah. Uh, that's an exact example mm. of something where in my career. I think we have said more outrageous things on that programme, which is seemingly cosy, and seemingly very British and very friendly and very, um, you know, all all generations welcome. It, it, that's what it looks like. It's wrapped up in a lovely green bow of British rurality, if there's such a word. And yet, and and yet in the middle of it there's characters talking about bestiality there's characters talking about having sex with um uh trans people there's you know there's all kinds of stuff going on in that show that uh there are mentions of there are joke, full-on sex jokes in that in that show that are very edgy uh but because they're you know and there's quite a lot of politics in that show it is um, uh, An apologetically left no, no doubt about it it just is of course it is um, and because it's humanitarian and it's kind and it cares about poverty and um, the underdog and so on that's what a vicar does after all um, but you know because it's wrapped up as I say in this lovely friendly thing you, you get away with a huge amount of cheek in a show like that Much more than if in in some of the supposedly edgier stuff I've done, like with the comic strip or with Jennifer, where you might expect us to be a bit outrageous, especially at the beginning, like the young ones or something like that. But whereas I, I I would maintain the Vicar of Dibley's got away with much more over the years.
1: But Geraldine is the is the axis of Dibley, isn't she? Because it's slightly wobbly, the axis of the planet that we live on and everything else yes. goes on around it. So she's it's not fixed, it's not rigid, but she's there and she's constant and she she's there for good, bad for day and for night. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I remember at the very beginning, that was my fear with Richard is I just thought, oh, she's a do-gooder, which is great, but is it funny? Uh, I couldn't <laughs> think of any of my comedy heroes that played somebody just massively decent. In fact, quite the opposite was the case. You know, cowardly um, people, people who feel um, diminished or people who are too loud or too bossy or whatever. Those are the funny characters. Those are the Basil Faulties in our world. Um, You know, uh, I couldn't think that a vicar who was just kind to everybody, could be funny i could see how everybody else was funny but i couldn't see how she was until i started to realize okay reacting to all these crazy people is what's funny and trying to kind of um look after them properly like a flock of sheep of errant (laughs) sheep trying to escape you know that's that she's the shepherdess that's exactly what she is and it's difficult to do it and she is pushed plus she has flaws you know she has she's she's a bit greedy she's got a bit of hubris she, she's interested far too interested in lust yeah. <laughs> you know she's interested in food she's interested in in her own self-promotion and she has to learn lessons from all of it obviously but she's allowed to push it a little bit sometimes so that she uh you see her trip
1: up if you like yeah She's so clever as a character, um, you know, because, the, you know, in, in the history of situation comedies, you know, it is usually the geographical environment, you know, um, where, in which the humour takes place. That is the situation. Yeah. But I think she's the situation. I think wherever she goes, you're in Geraldine's world and she is a movable situation of comedy.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. and we And there are people like her everywhere and you know I'd like to think those people are in the church lots of those people are in the church because that is what the church is supposed to be doing um and in fact I've met many people who are very like her um a lot of women that there is now we we just filmed um some Dibleys for for this Christmas and we for one of the little episodes we went back to Dibley which is a place called Turville in Oxfordshire And uh, the vicar there now is a woman.
1: Oh, Oh, the irony. So cool. It's funny, Dawn, because um, yesterday the family and I, we went to, um, because we live in Marlow now, and we went to, we usually go to Marlow Common for a bit of a bike ride or a play in the leaves or they've got the old um, First World War trenches up there, the training trenches, which are great. The kids love all that. Yeah. Um, but, but yesterday morning we, we went to Hambledon for the first time, there's a few Hambledons so this one is the one near Henley and it's and I know Turville really well but Hambledon is almost more 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 dibbly than Turvy. it's unbelievable <laughs> have you been to Hambledon?
0: I think we've shot in Hambledon, oh my you know. god it's
1: gorgeous, I think we have it's, it's, the, ni- it's the nicest, everybody go to Hambledon, uh, they've got the best shop in there, uh, the ladies in there they, they serve you tea on the go takeaway teas but you know via cups and saucers everything's homemade all the pies are made and right next to the shop there's an amazing pub there as well and it does look like a film set it's the biggest church i mean it must have been an old priory but the church is bigger than all the houses in the village put together wow wow
0: i mean i might be remembering it because we used to live um, over that side, but we lived in Berkshire, we right. lived near Wokingham um, in Shinfield. That's where we, and so we might have actually just gone to Hambledon as a family. We might have, but I've got oh. a feeling we did a bit of filming there. But it's very
1: picturesque, all of it, and oh. very friendly. It's stunning. It's, of course, Turban yeah. is um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yes, no, it's got it? the windmill up oh, on the top there. Got the windmill. It was
0: very odd. I can't tell you, Chris, it was strange to be back there because, of course, Now, um, there's very few of us remaining from the Dibley gang. And it was really myself and um, James Fleet, who plays Hugo. Um, But there was Richard Curtis there and Paul Mayhew Archer, who writes it, and John Plamman, who always produced it. And, you know, there we were with the film crew in Dibley, you know, and in the church. And it just felt very strange. I mean, it's it's very bittersweet, uh, because when you've lost so many of your darlings... You know, you just realize how long this show has been running for Mm. and how much you love that family, if you like. But for the purposes of these little films that we've shot, which are a kind of they're strange bit of television, but it suits this this odd year very well. We decided that Geraldine would what would she do in a lockdown? She would, of course, zoom her sermons or the or the parish newsletter to whoever was able to receive it. She'd still be looking after everybody. So they're able to be little short films all the way through. And there's one for every month from March up till December, all the way through the lockdown, including all the kind of restrictions that went with that, you know, when we were allowed out, when we were allowed to get close to other people, when we weren't, you know, whatever. Uh, and so you see Joldy go through the lockdown, still ministering to her flock, so to speak. Um, and we, as I say, we go outside when we're allowed to go outside. And one of the little episodes is a, a sort of tribute, really a eulogy to Alice, because everybody knows that Emma has gone. And so Alice has also gone. But however, Richard decided that the, some of the other characters like Owen and um, John bluthill's character, Frank, even though those actors are no longer with us, he wanted the characters to still remain. So off screen, I still refer to those characters for jokes purposes and because because they still live on in, dub, in Dibley. But we had to be honest about um, about Alice. And and there's a little episode there where, and this is one of the joys of Dibley, is that it can be as sad or as funny as you like. It can dip into reality. It can dip into poli- politics and it can dip out anytime you like. That's what I love about it is a kind of, completely pliable thing. Um, but to get through that that little film about her was
1: very hard. Are there any photographs of Keir Starmer on the wall behind you? Any <laughs> the, Keir Starmer isn't on the wall but George Michael is. <laughs> Good. And and Stormzy is. Perfect. It's yeah. so so clever, isn't it? I mean Rich is, I mean obviously he's a genius, no question about that. Um, yeah. the, the next obvious question is is did this stir uh, the 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 water's enough to think hang on a minute come on it's been far too long this is this is coming back it's it's all too fluid it's you know why would we do more of these now
0: um no i didn't have any doubt about it because the, when when um when richard and I talked about it we did we did a little one for the big night in for the comet relief and uh I wondered then if it would feel right but i did it in my you know my den in my house and shot it on my phone and with my husband's camping lights um you know uh, and because people seem to like it i thought okay this makes sense to me this is the truth of how it might be um I, I, and yeah i'm okay with that really all right with it and you know to be back in richard's company again i mean richard is my friend um i'm sure he's your friend and he is a good friend and um, I see as much of Richard and Emma as I can. But to when you work together, and even Jennifer and I find this: when you book a job together, that means you're together all day. That's fantastic. You know, you re- its its a shame in a way, isn't it? That you know, there's Jennifer, my beloved darling, and we—we we, we both go. Look, what job can we book that so that we can <laughs> spend loads of time together? Otherwise, you know, we—we we, life takes over, and yes. kids take over, yes, so and right. you know, we, you get distracted. But I'm lucky that I work with people that I really love a lot.
1: So is this the last pass for Vicar of Dibley, do you think?
0: Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I've always wondered whether she'd make a good bishop, but then she'd have to leave Dibley. And uh, I, 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 uh, that, that's another whole thing. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe there's a possibility. Who knows?
1: Yeah, unless Dibley acquired county status and became Dibley Shire.
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's never going to happen. That could work.
1: Never going to happen. OK, I'll stick to being a DJ. Um, <laughs> what about a movie?
0: Um No. no. I, I, there's something about the half hours right. that is the right length for, for Dibley. And there's something about television. I, I, I find television to be a splendid thing and just right. And loads more people see telly than ever see a movie. Mm. And you have to decide a movie is 90 minutes long. Mm. It's got to have a beginning and a middle and an end. And look at all the Look at all the mistakes people have made. Even, even Malcolm and Wise, who we were talking about, they made a movie that wasn't very good. How, can you imagine Morecambe and Wise doing something not very good? And it's because
1: it was outside the formula, Yeah, but way. their show was a sketch show, wasn't it? Whereas Vick for isn't. It's comedy drama, so... Well, oh. it
0: isn't, but it is, it is a half-hour sitcom. Yeah, yeah, I get it. That's thinking. what it is. It is. And it can, uh, occasionally the, st- the specials stretch to 40 minutes. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's... I, I think it's a television child. All right, I'll just cross
1: that one off then. Okay. As I mean. <laughs> so you mentioned Mark there in the middle of all that. Um, so how to wow, Dawn, how to date in your 50s? Come on, oh, give God. us the juice, Dawn. Oh,
0: I was so bad at it. So very, very bad. I think, well, I think what happened was, you know, I was suddenly single and I thought, okay, do I actually want to be back in a relationship? I didn't really want to get back into a great big tangle again I just didn't want to be that committed to something again um and I wanted to to, you know have a bit of fun every now and again but I also wanted to have my own company so when I had I had a couple of dates with various folk um before I hooked up with Mark and it was sort of excruciating um oh the decision about what underwear you're gonna wear oh god everything in my drawer was nice and big and a little bit grey and tired elastic oh my favourite comfortable underwear and when you date someone you've got to wear other stuff Mm -hmm. Um, and then I thought why am I doing that I don't know why would I not want this person to meet the real me with the real comfortable underwear on who have I become and if, if in your 50s you can't know who you are things are not good so I, I backed off the the dating that I was doing um and then of course I decided not to date anybody and that's when he turned up
1: that's but, when he turned yeah, up. yeah I mean you did you did you buy new underwear at that stage in your life
0: yeah I did yeah and uh all of it has been binned all of it um some of my this is a this is a shocking fact. I realise some of my <laughs> underwear is thirty years old.
1: Well, God bless it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and long may she sail in them. Yes.
1: Um, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because between um, you're dabbling in dating, um, yeah, Mark pitching up, you talk about yes. this. You talk about this one moment when you went for a walk on the beach and you thought, do you know what? Life's a bit all right.
0: Yeah, uh, and I think I might have had to get to that realisation before I was ready, actually, to jump back into something because you have to find out who you are as a singleton, don't you? When you've been married for a very... I was married for 25 years mm. um, and in that relationship, for nearly 30 years, so I, I was part of that couple. And, you know, there's, there's you, there's the other person in the couple, and then there's what I call the third thing, which is what you are together. Um, you know, which is something different to you and him. Um, And and that is what what sort of defines you for a long time. You shape it, you change it, um, you know, you alter it, you question it, you challenge it. But you still are that third thing, which is that couple um, and, and what you make together. And then suddenly to be on your own, you just think, okay, now I have to go back to remembering who am I really? How do I relate to the world? How do I relate to my family when, I, when there isn't this? Because couples make you part of everything. You're part of their family. You, you have a way you present yourselves together. There's a way things you do, things you don't do. And I just thought, God, actually, there are lots of things I quite like doing that I did, I'd forgotten that I liked. And it was just it was my own fault. I'd just forgotten who I actually am as a single person. So that was that day on the beach when I suddenly thought, oh, do you know, I quite, I quite like who I am. Yeah. And I quite like my life. I've got the things. I, I love where I live. Uh, I love my daughter. Um, I love my dog. I love my life. Uh, I, I'm, I'm OK. I've been blessed. It's, it's all right. I've survived this. Uh, everyone's OK. Uh, I don't have to feel sad about anything. I can feel hopeful. And that's when I thought, oh, and breathe. Yeah. And then, of course, as soon as I was exhaling for the first proper time a good, deep breath, um, that's when Mark turned up.
1: And for people who are listening, you know, who are, who find themselves, whether it's midlife or, or slightly before or afterwards, who who are who are in a situation that they think perhaps it would be best for everyone if they weren't in, you know, and they're fearful of doing something about it. Could you just speak to that for a moment? Do you mean the big stuff? Yeah, so like if, if you know, somebody who is just so frightened of confronting the situation, even though it will be best for everyone concerned, but they can't take, you know, the first breath, let alone the last one, the huge sigh of relief that you finally got to, to, to make yes. a change. I mean, you know, how scary can that be? And any, any tips on that? I know it's that tips that sound no, like uh, trivialising, but know, I don't mean to trivialise it. No,
0: no, no, I don't see it as that. I, I... All I can say is, reflecting back on it, you just go one foot in front of the other, one breath at a time. It's very hard to do that because I am a catastrophizer. I am a worrier, you know, I can project into the future and see all kinds of terrible things. Um, And I sometimes think that is part of my process. I catastrophize a bit and think, oh, if what if everyone I knew died, what about if a meteor hit us all tomorrow? And then I think, oh, hang on, Um, pull back from that. That's not going to happen. And that's not going to happen. And once I visited the worst place, I return to reality and to the real place. And you just go step at a time, step at a time. And like my mum, my darling old mum always used to say to me, the only way out is through. And that is true. You cannot dodge stuff in your life. Well, you can. And it might work for a moment, uh, but it ain't going to work. Uh, in the long run, so just bite the bullet and go through the grief or the fear, and just let it, let it subsume you a bit, and give in, surrender to it, allow it, and and trust the process. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but it's just so true. There is a process to everything. We all know it because we know that when you go to bed worrying about something. And you, it is easier in the morning. It is easier with the daylight. It's easier with the time off in your brain. So it, big life stuff like that, when you suddenly find yourself sing, single, you just have to allow the process of it to be all around you. And you'd be amazed what you find in it. As soon as you are prepared to open your eyes, so you think, oh, there's a little glimmer of light over there. Oh, actually, I quite like being on my own doing this. Oh. I I got no like cheese. I can't. I haven't eaten cheese for years. Uh, you know, you, you there are little delights that you allow yourself, and you suddenly think, yeah, I am capable. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. I I am managing it. I haven't collapsed. I'm actually quite mighty. <laughs> uh, without getting too carried away with it, I did start to think, blimey, I, I'm made of strong stuff, mm. and I'm made of strong stuff because I've been taught to be. But I. Uh, and because I've had good examples of amazing parents and stuff, and uh, amazing friends, but you know, you are capable if you allow yourself to be. If you, if you crowd your head with doubt, you know there is there. Is, if you slightly surrender to the fact that you're feeling a bit wobbly and that you allow it to be a wobble rather than a wall, if you like, then then you can manage to go forward. And did did I ever tell you about? Um, the day that I decided Mark was going to be my next chap.
1: Have I ever told you this? No, you haven't told me,
0: no. Do you want to hear about it? I would love to hear about (laughs) it, yes. Because it was very extraordinary. And Mark had been in my mum's life, because they both work in the same field of helping people that are in a bit of a pickle with drugs and alcohol and all the kind of affected others, all the families and stuff. And he was my mum's colleague, albeit much younger colleague, but they ran the same... Center called Hammo's House in Plymouth, where which helps people in those kind of pickles, and so I'd heard about him a lot because he was her friend, and I'd met him a couple of times because he was her friend and colleague, and she rated him very highly. Um, and so I'd come across him a couple of times. And my mum was given, for instance, an honorary doctorate, and he was there at that ceremony because you know, alongside us, she loved him very much, so he was there. And I thought, oh, he's a nice guy. What a nice guy, nice colleague of mum's, clever counselor, lovely guy. But that's all I thought. I was married. I wasn't looking. Um, So after I was single and when I decided that was it, I didn't really want to look for a guy. I didn't want to live my life kind of um, vicariously through somebody else or through a a partnership I wanted to just kind of chug on. Um, I was writing a book where one of my characters had a big relationship with cocaine. And in my family, if you want to know about big, heavy drugs, you go and talk to your (laughs) mum because that was her job. And i said she'd retired by then and he had taken her job so he's the the ceo at Hamos. and i said to mum you know how can i really research this cocaine stuff i don't want to write this character unless it's authentic and i have no idea what it costs who where you get it from uh, how much you can take what kind of people take it how do how do you take it how does it make you feel i mean i've had mates who've been involved with it but i did you know at this point when i was writing the novel I didn't um, know anybody that, 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 you know, where I could do that research. Anyway, she said, call Mark, he will set up a couple of people for you to talk to. And what I really respected was both my mum and Mark said, I I will set you up with a couple of people to do research with. But I, I need to be sure that those people feel safe to talk to you, and that you will not disclose anything you shouldn't. And that, you know, So in other words, their concern was for those people, for the service users, not for my research. And I liked that and respected that. So in I went to Hamo's house and there was Mark standing on the front porch. And, you know, I looked at Mark, there's my mum's mate, Mark, and he's just going to help me out. He took me up to his office. And he introduced me to a couple of people that he works with who were prepared to uh, do the research. for me. But I sat down in his office. And if you can picture this, there's a big window in the side of the office. And he had put both of the people in chairs in front of that window. So I was on the inside looking out towards the window. So they were (laughs) silhouetted in in front of the window. And that annoyed me because I couldn't see their faces very well. And when you're talking to people and doing research, you need to see their faces. Anyway, I thought, oh, this is bad organisation, but I can hardly um, reorganise the room. (laughs) I can hardly redecorate. That would be a bit rude. Anyway, I did my research with him. He came in after an hour. He, um, you know, we thanked them. Off they went. And he said, oh, would you like a cup of tea? And to be honest, I was sort of uh, treading water, really being polite. I went, well, um, yeah, okay. I didn't really want a cup of tea and I didn't really want to remain there anymore. I'd done my work and, um, as he's a nice chap I was ready to get home. So, you know, I was clock watching a bit, but I thought, well, I'm going to be polite. So he makes a cup of tea and he sat down then again in front of the window. So he was silhouetted against it. And again, I was a bit annoyed and thought, I can't even see his face. Anyway, we were chatting away and I was filling time and I just said, so how are your kids? You know, how are things going? Because I knew he'd been divorced. I knew he had two um, kids. His daughter was in university. He had a younger son still at school. And as he started to talk about his kids, this is no word of a lie. Behind him, out through the window, the sun was behind a cloud and it just came out from behind the (laughs) cloud. Uh, And the rays from the sun literally flooded into the room. And, you know, in that way, it suddenly calmed when the sun comes out and suddenly the room lights up so it's a bit like a movie um anyway the rays came into the room and the wall behind where I was sitting was a plain wall and the rays bounced off that wall back onto that man, and he was suddenly (laughs) lit like Fellini or someone was lighting him and I suddenly looked at him seriously and I went I went from going, oh God, I need to get out of here. You know, we got, I need to get home, to going, who is that man? <laughs> Look at his eyes. Look at his rather good chin. Look at his broad shoulders. Listen to him talking about his children. Listen to the kindness in him and the strength. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, this man has to be my husband. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Literally, I went from being very disinterested to wanting to claim him in a very lustful (laughs) and artful way within 10 seconds and he just kept on chatting kept on chatting he did not know that a seismic change had happened inside me I mean an earthquake happened and then the sun went in behind the next cloud and off we were and I I I had changed completely and of course when I got home I said to I rang my mum and she said, oh, how did the research go? And I said, yeah, yeah. It wasn't about the research, really. Um, what you need to know is that I think I'm a bit sweet on Mark. And she went, no, 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 like that. <laughs> I really love my mum and respected her. And I thought, oh, mate, why is she saying no? So maybe she knows something about, maybe there's something nefarious about Mark that I don't know. And I said, well, what, what, what is it, mum? She said, no, far too young, far too young for you. And I said, well, how old is he? And she said, well, I don't know. I don't know. I said, well, so why aren't you saying that? What do you mean? And she said, well, no, it's just not right. It's not right. Anyway, we ended that phone call and I thought, oh God. All right. Well, that's a shame because I would trust my mum's judgment, but I don't know quite what's going on. Anyway, she called me back and she said, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) She said, I've had a very odd reaction there. She said, uh, the thing is, he's my friend. He's he's my friend. And it just suddenly felt really odd that you were saying that about him. I didn't know what to think. And then she said, I've had to think about it. And she said to me, you know, after your dad, who she lost, obviously, very young, after your dad and your brother, that is my most favourite man in the world. So, of course, <laughs> you would like him. Of course you would. And I will do anything I can to affect this uh, this relationship. And I said, right, you have to shut up now, mum, and not say a word. You just need to give me information. Is he single? Is he this? Is he that? And she didn't do any more about it. But when my mum was dying, which was very sad and quite soon afterwards, she said to me, I can go now because you've got him. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, because I know he'll look after you. I know you'll look after him. You're in good hands and I'm, I can go. So, you know, this man came with a bit of a sort of guarantee, a bit of a warranty from my mum.
1: What a story, Dawn French.
0: What a story. Oh. I mean, and that, the sort of stuff that I would never believe. And somewhere in my mum's um, reckoning about all this, she said, well, of course, when I told her about the sun coming out in the room, I said, God, isn't it weird? It was just sort of nature happened at exactly the right moment. She went, that's not nature. That was your father. That was your father telling you, you know, from heaven. Um, <laughs> uh, look at this man. Look at what's sitting right in front of you. You're not looking at him properly. Uh, so whatever she wanted to believe, that's fine. But and I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not one for weird s- stuff like that. But it
1: was a strange day, it really was. Well, you're not, and you are. I mean, sorry, I'm sorry. I know you decried my idea of the Vicar of Dibley movie earlier on, but that's it right there, <laughs> isn't it? That's Geraldine's moment. <laughs> Well, Geraldine's already married, No, well, I know got married but, at the end, I know, but you but that's that's how you'd put it cinematically, wouldn't you you know that's that's wow, yeah it was. was
0: it was very strange, you know uh, 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 very surreal and yet very real at the same time, and like I say, odd and completely normal all at the same yeah. time. how was the tea yeah. i I never drank the tea <laughs> I had no interest <laughs> in the tea <laughs> <laughs> i only interested in the man
1: too, too busy salivating. <laughs> too busy <laughs> to get salivating. past the lips. <laughs> Oh, oh no. what a story. That's a brilliant. Yeah, isn't it, story.
0: It's, a, it's a good lesson, isn't it? Sometimes what we want in our lives or what we need or what we're looking for is right there under right under our nose. I mean, Jennifer and Aid were friends forever at the comic strip. Mm. forever. never imagined they'd be in a relationship until you know they were available, they were free. we were doing a job. it sort of happened, you know and it, and they even had to be slightly pushed together. And I was one of the pushes on the Jennifer side, you know. But it was she, he was right under her nose.
1: I think I think it's my favourite um, uh, affirmation. What you're looking for is where you're looking from, because we lack nothing.
0: That's right. It's it's all there. It's all there if only you will look.
1: Yeah, or make yourself available again, you know. To... Or
0: make yourself available, exactly. And I, I wasn't really available. I'd had the horrible flirting underwear moments and excruciating
1: <laughs> embarrassment,
0: but with the wrong people,
1: you know, with the wrong people. Yeah, but they get you to the right person. So that's all part that's of right. the
0: journey, isn't it? It's, it's, that's right. You know. And it is about working out who people are, you know. And, in fact, I did have with one chap who I liked very much, actually, and he's he quite a posh man. And and he took me for some very nice suppers. And there was one day when I thought, and he was trying to push it a little bit further. And I thought, oh, I just can't go any further with you. I can't think what it is. You're perfectly attractive and I've got the right underwear on. And, you know, why can't I get to the next level with you? What is it? And, you know, then I worked out what it was. Oh, it's because you're a Tory. Oh, no. (laughs) And I just thought I just can't spend my life with a Tory. I can't even spend any more dates. Frankly, you could be my mate. Oh. We could be friends, but we just have to agree that it's
1: this. This can't be romantic. I can't be romantic with a Tory. I can't see now. Kirstom's quite centrist, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, so so that's, that's, okay. that's okay. That's okay. I'm going to say obviously that's okay. That's definitely okay. That question. Um, so your mum. Because your mum yeah. had a great take on Mark. Of obviously, you know, a great, a great, um, a great taste in human beings generally. She had an amazing uh, reason to 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 live because she was, you know, she had this vocation of service. But she yeah. al- she also had, and um, uh, this is a little Amber warning for you, Dawn. I don't know how you're going to feel about yes. this question. But she also yes. had, she also had the greatest take on dying I've ever heard.
0: Yes, she did. Yes, she did. Um, I think it's because she was very, she was a, a very, um, mm, strong is too too small a word for her. She, she was made of very tough stuff, my mum. She never wanted any fussing about anything. Uh, even when she was very poorly and she had a couple of poorly moments in her life, not many, uh, but she didn't want you to help her. She didn't want to be a burden. She didn't want anything like that. Um, and so when she when she finally did um, realise that she had cancer, she had lung cancer, I mean, she'd been smoking since she was, well, she says, sort of 13 or 14. I think it was more like nine. Um, you know, my mum had been a big smoker her whole life um, and never stopped, even though we begged her to. Um, even though I paid her to once, I remember paying her £100 <laughs> to stop. And she promised me she had my I saw the bags in, a, in a, a bag. I thought, oh, you're just a liar. Um, but anyway she she as she got closer to the end and she knew that it wasn't going to be long she said well it's win-win and I said what on earth do you mean we've just been told that there's really limited time here and she said well I either stay here with you guys meaning me and my brother and all her grandchildren or I go and see your dad that's what and she had such a completely impervious faith that she would be together with him again. And she, you know, because my dad committed suicide quite young, you know, my mum had been on her own for a very long time. And she was very, she'd always believed that she'd be joined with him again. So, you know, that was that was an amazing thing. and In a funny way that we were all off the hook then, because my mum was going through a better place to do something she wanted to do that she deserved to have. I, I don't know if I believe that's where she's gone or that she's with him but she believed it and that's all that matters.
1: But to be able to die peacefully, that has got that's the ultimate thing, isn't it? I suppose to, to, to love and protect everyone around you in your life, you know, and, yes. and people, you know, great definition of, of genuine kindness is helping people out. You'll never meet. I love, I love that too, but to be able oh to. Oh my goodness.
0: You know, at her funeral, it was, it, it was at the crematorium in Plymouth and it just spilled out. And we, we could hardly fit everybody in because of all the young women, especially my mum was very committed to helping young women who were in trouble with drugs and alcohol to to reconnect back with their families and to learn how to cook for and be with and mother your children and how to find delight in that and purpose in that. And she was very committed to it so much so that. Her method of doing this, and my mum borrowed from a bit from 12 Steps and a bit from everything she thought that that would work. It, it was such a good system um, that my mum consulted with the government for a while, with Momolum and stuff, on, on trying to create paths for people to recover.
1: Have you ever thought about writing about that? Because it'd be so helpful. I'm, you know, I'd like to ask you about your mum's playbook for being a parent, because I know that you're obsessed with that, and as, as we all are, as all parents should be anyway, because it's our most important uh, responsibility. But, you yeah. know, your mum seems to have nailed it, although you talk quite openly of course you would because it's the truth about the fact you had humdinger of arguments so so how to wow again here we go let's mine some of dawn's gold how do you have how do you how do you have a massive row with your mum um to, to let off steam and then how do you make up best because you know that you
0: can have that massive row because you can have a difference of opinion or you can have a mood or you can have a moment um in the sure and certain knowledge That she is the scaffolding that you are made of, so you're never going to escape her, and you don't want to escape her. You're made of all the good stuff that she's made of. You're very similar in lots of ways, and you're learning from each other all the time. So whatever wars that you have, you know they will resolve in peace and in forgiveness. You know you'll be forgiven. That's the absolute surety, and that's your job as a parent. You know I I am a massive believer in the fact that you should love your children the most when they deserve it the least and you know in the wars I had with my mum I I certainly behaved appallingly Um, you know and I just didn't like I was allergic to her for a while everything she stood for everything mainly in my teens and my early 20s you know everything about her was just the opposite of anything I wanted I couldn't bear her advice I couldn't bear her wisdom I couldn't bear how right she was I couldn't bear the very the closeness of her you know the, her very being sometimes um but that is part <laughs> of the of the tearing and you know i'm a great believer that in order to let your children go which you've got to do there has to be some of this war otherwise you you would die of sorrow when they do go and they never really go but they go from your home you know and so they should that's the whole point they have to get out of your nest but if you if you're so connected and you've never rowed and you've never explored the experience of rowing and then making up and forgiving each other and learning about each other, you know, you would just die of sadness. And and, and that's what part of this, um, the tearing apart is. And I certainly had that with my mum, but we never, never
1: didn't love each other. We always loved each other. And on, on the row just just for the benefit of other yes. parents like myself, how often would you and your mum row?
0: I don't think they'd be – I think we only had a couple of big humdingers that were big and loud. We weren't those kind of people. We were sulky, um, ignoring, um, shutting the door, going in your bedroom, grrrring away to yourself kind of people. Right. Yeah, which is actually more unpleasant, weirdly. And then then the sulk itself becomes a, a, a creature you have to feed and you have to keep on sulking so you can win the sulk. Uh, war, um, and then you forget you forget that you've salt. You have a sleep, or you know you want a cup of tea, and you'd quite like to cheer up, but you don't want to lose the salt war. Oh. So you've got to keep on going. Then you have to fake it. <laughs> then you have to fake the salt when you're actually quite happy and you're over it. So you know, my mum would would um
1: pierce that kind of bubble very quickly that's so interesting you say that i remember sulking you know genuinely sulking and then you can feel the salt wearing off and you think yeah oh now what where, what are i doing now I've, I've yeah what bed, do i do now i've been in bedroom and for you six feel hours slightly
0: foolish yeah and the, you think, f- the salt looks foolish on you and you can't bear the, yeah. the embarrassment of
1: it and you can smell tea, <laughs> you can smell tea being made downstairs and you get really hungry <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. And my mum would cook stew, which she knew would gather us all in. It was like, you know, she was like calling us onto a mermaid, calling oh, us onto the God. rocks. And we, we had to come for the stew. <laughs> the anatomy of a family is a fascinating yeah. thing.
1: The anatomy it? and the anathema. Um, so here's the other frustrating bit, everyone, in case you haven't been a parent yet, is guess what? None of this works on your own daughter necessarily.
0: <laughs> Definitely
1: not. which is Definitely the re- not. which is the re- real head fuck so what do you do what do you do there dawn well
0: what you realize is slowly and carefully you realize that that your daughter is not you <laughs>
1: uh,
0: they are them and you are you and you can do as much guiding as you possibly can you can wrangle it as much as you like you can wrangle their lives and try and You know, sort it out as much as you can. But in the end, you step back. And it's the hardest thing to do. But they cannot step forward until you step back. And I think my husband has taught me this. He's just taught me to stop trying to control stuff so much and to let even let difficult, uh, chaotic stuff happen. Because that's where all the learning is. The learning is in all the mistakes, isn't it? And if you don't make mistakes, you're never going to learn anything. No one has a life without mistakes, and in fact, if 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 your parents keep rescuing, a helicopter parents they're called aren't they? If They keep doing it. You you never touch the sides of all your mistakes, and you you don't know what it feels like.
1: Yeah, I love the I love the, um, the take on it that says. Your mistakes aren't you. They're your mistakes, but they're not you. And so whether, you know, you, you became angry or you became frustrated or, you know, you were over-happy, you know, that wasn't you. That was just that ex- that emotion that you were experiencing at that time. And if you can put a bit of distance between you and it, then you have perspective. Yes. And then it t- takes the charge out of the situation.
0: It does. And own up to the mistakes. Don't hide them or pretend that they were something else. They were mistakes. And you, and you made them for all kinds of reasons. And wear them, wear them as badges of honour and just go, that was a mistake. This was a mistake. I mean, whoever writes their autobiography and claims themselves to be cowardly, uh, unpleasant, smelly, difficult people. Nobody does. Everyone writes the best of themselves with maybe a few nods to moments where they tripped up. But even then they'll find reasons for it. I'm all for putting them as, I I say this now as a 63 year old, of course, you know, when I can reflect a bit. But I'm all for wear them, wear them like badges and go, that was a mistake. This was a mistake. That was a mistake. But I, OK, I like you say, I am not the mistake. It's it's just a mistake. And I'm, I've learned from that now. And that
1: enables me to be a different person who hopefully won't <laughs> make that mistake again. Hopefully. It's my mistake, but it's not me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you say uh, and you have said that your children, when you realize that you should step back and let your children or your child be who they are you know it teach you it to take a step back but i i also find that that's a, a very sort of virtuous habit to apply to the rest of your life so you so your child teaches you to take a step back and let something happen and stop controlling it but then you can apply that to every other aspect of your life and then also to yourself so you can take a step back from yourself even yeah, you can. Absolutely. Uh, you, you you should What's always
0: allow yourself the room to change, shouldn't you? I mean, I'm not great at that. I don't think because I like most people. I like the familiarity of the way I do stuff. It just feels familiar. And sometimes familiar is what is it? It's familiar. It, it just <laughs> is what is what you're used to. So you just keep on doing it. And so long as you haven't tripped up too much, you think, well, I keep, I'll keep doing these things this way because that's what I know. But actually, sometimes to take a risk and change things is really good. But I, w- I would say that when you do step back from your kids, you allow them to creep out from underneath you, if you know what I mean, and be the kids that they actually really are. And And I, you know, listen, my parents somehow allowed me that. So, you know, I was able to be the real me eventually. It took a bit of, you know, working on, but I, uh, you know, somehow they, they weren't as involved in my life as I have been in my daughter's life when she was younger. I think that's just a change. Like, something to do with our generation. We're much more involved in their schooling, their, you know, their, their, their sports, their extra things they do, their music they like, the friends they have, we want to know everything. We want to know what they're doing on social media. And I understand all the need for um you know precaution. I understand that. But it does mean that they can't separate from us. And and that is difficult. And remember I've got two stepchildren as well who were fairly well cooked by the time I came along. But they've taught me an awful lot because of course I wasn't in their life. I'm not their biological mum. So I wasn't in their life when they were younger and and I've learned an awful lot by coming to them from a bit of a distance, if you like, and getting closer rather than the other way round. With my own daughter being far too far in, and then stepping back. So I think I've found a sort of happy, yeah, yeah, the happy place in between now.
1: So how to uh, you, you know, how to adopt? We could talk about that. Sixty hours of interviews you had to uh, withstand before you got to adopt. Early. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's I think that's the norm. Actually, it was then. So, yeah, you do you do interviews together separately, you know, social workers investigate you very seriously. uh, And so they should, you know, because you could be very ill suited to it and they need to find out if you are ready. And so that's what we did. Lots and lots of
1: that. Okay, and the um, the sort of analysis of gene and environment, you know, nature versus nurture, uh, you know, when you adopt. A child in a way you have a more definite separation between the two, but you know, having now parents incredibly in uh five children now, one way or another, um, I think that's sort of it feels to me like that's sort of it anyway, because you have the DNA, you know, we've got twins, we've got twins, we've got Bill and Walt, and they're entirely different, yet they're brought yeah, up in the same household by the same parents. Well, before
0: I adopted my daughter, I remember going to Jennifer and saying, "Oh God, you know, will I love this kid, and will she love me?" And blah blah blah. And she went, "Listen, I've got three, uh, uh, and we know where they all came from. We made them. They all look a bit like us, but they're all very different. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, honestly, can't tell you where they've come from. And so, you know, don't worry about that. And I just thought, okay, okay, that's got good advice. That? You know, I got lots of good advice from Jennifer, actually." Lots of things, because her kids were just a little bit ahead of my daughter in terms of age. So, you know, I, I was able to ask her anything and everything. And she had a, you know, she said by the time she got to her third kid, she was much more relaxed about everything. So, um, yeah, so she was a source of great support for me.
1: Right. Um, We've got a lot to get through and we haven't got much. Much uh, time left So let's Okay Let's do this Um, I've got loads of time But I don't want to Impinge upon your time But um, Okay Talking about Jen there uh, Titting about has happened in 2020 Um you know, let's have more titting about, please. Yes. <laughs> Any titting about on the telly at all? Well, um, maybe?
0: Uh, no telly planned at the moment. Well, first of all,
1: tell everybody what titting about is, if, in case they don't OK, know.
0: Well, well, the way it came about was that during, at uh, the very beginning of the lockdown, we got a phone call from Audible saying, you know, we're making a series where we're putting together pairs of people. They might be best friends, they might just be chums, they might be whatever. Uh, You two obviously are a double act. Would you do a kind of Zoom conversation about your experience of lockdown? Um, And we're doing a series of them. I think Jason Mounted did one, Sarah Millican did one and blah, blah, blah. So we said, yeah, all right, we'll do that. Why not? This is the only thing we can do. We're all stuck indoors. So we did it and had a lovely time. And of course, slightly forgot that there are people listening. Um, uh, uh, We're a bit careless, uh, which is the fun of it in a way. and out went that series, and um, and they came straight back to us and said, "Would you make a series, or you know, a whole series with just the two of you?" And we said, "Well, yes, we might have to prepare it a little bit more than we did that, uh, but let's do that." And then the restrictions lifted, and Jen was the first person to my house when we were allowed to sit outside at a distance from each other and she came and sat with me by the sea and we just yapped away and um we came up with some sort of titles like holidays or passions or uh, whatever you know our careers stuff like that very very arbitrary titles of stuff and um the minute we started to try and write notes about what we might say Uh, We both went, oh, God, this feels like hard work. This isn't really what we're going to do. Why don't we just have a title? You go away and think of some things and try and remember some stuff. I'll go and try and remember some stuff and bring some stuff to surprise you with. Um, And let's just tit about. (laughs) And then we went to a studio, um, which is called Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, which I go to often. I know the guys that run it and they sanitise the studio because this was in the very early days of returning back to work. And we just sat uh, at a table and we titted about. And it is the best fun I have had because <laughs> I'm with my my friend. And, and we were just being very, very loose. And I guess it's a chance for people to be in our company. I guess that's what it is. It's like listening to a couple of mates talking on a sofa which is exactly what it was i mean some moments have come out of there like anything like this probably where we're being a little bit unfiltered and so you're going to hear about it from the tabloids they're going to extract little moments and cherry pick bits that you you know that you're going to have to answer for like jennifer said something about anton de beck and oh god it just turned into (laughs) a giant
1: tabloid fest
0: they'll take anything nowadays Oh, exactly, well, you know better than me about about all this So it is a risk But, but it's a risk worth taking Because you know we, we just had such good fun And it seems to have been very popular So oh, we definitely God. will
1: do more But um, not till next year what, Titting about on the telly, that's what it's called Titting about on the telly, titting about in Tokyo Titting about at NASA Go go, <laughs> go to all these places and tit about, why? Dawn
0: Why? Then you've got to put makeup on I And know, turn up and get I on know, a plane I'd much rather just sit in a studio And just think of whatever comes in into your head I did find out stuff about her on there that was very interesting you know we're talking about childhood holidays and stuff and I feel like I know everything about Jen and she knows everything about me but we don't because when you're you know when you're dredging up memories of your childhood there are stories the other person hasn't heard that's what was so great to have the time to explore it, if you like, and and also don't forget when when us two are together, really our main aim is to try and, and make the other one giggle as much, as much as possible, and so we're tarts for a good laugh, and and that's what that, you know that was what happened.
1: By the way, he doesn't want to work at Fresh Air Studios in Cornwall. It's in Devon, actually. It's Devon, sorry, but it's yeah. just Fresh Air. What a great name for fresh a sound air. studio near the coast. Oh God, oh, Where, where's gorgeous. Fresh Air the radio gorgeous. station? I want to work on Fresh Air.
0: Yeah, tell them. (laughs) I've been running on fresh air for months. Yeah, I know, fresh air.
1: Um, No, but I know what you mean about about not wanting to the idea of tipping about on the telly sounds lovely but then you've got to make it I just want to watch you two doing it I wouldn't have to make it I can just sit at home watching it with a glass of wine but you two have got to go and do it and I can't believe you know having done this for a while myself now thinking I never thought that somebody could say to me why don't you do this I say, you know, I can't be bothered I, I didn't think that was an answer do you know what I mean yeah
0: well I don't I don't know if it's not can't be bothered because I'll do anything if I think it's worth doing mm. it's just that that is not worth doing for your eyes it's for your ears yeah I see it's it's to drive to or to have one in the background when you're cooking or you know that's what it's for it's being in someone's company if we have to mm. go and go and be somewhere we'll have to go and look at interesting things and some <laughs> producer will be deciding what you look at and how you I look know. and setting things up for you and i just don't want to be manipulated or managed but, in that
1: way I but, I, bear it. but i want to see you two titting about in the grand <laughs> well, canyon i it. want to see you titting Put about it in your ears instead in of the your rainforest eyes. Oh, no, please. No, <laughs> uh, absolutely not. You, you said, you've often said about, about your relationship with Jen, about writing, you know, it's just about being as naughty as, you know, sort of legally possible, having as much fun with your clothes on with each other as possible and, you know, trying yeah. to make it... To, and you once said, you know, I'd blow myself up if it would make her laugh. Um, yes, how? So, so tell us about that naughtiness, the, the comedians' naughtiness. When you stay on the right side of the wrong, but it is so naughty. And we're we're all, Ricky Gervais does it all the time. All the best do it all the time, and we're cringing. But it's okay. Do you know what I mean? Do,
0: do you know? Do you know what it is? It is play. Right. You know, we're just being children. We're being childlike rather than childish. Right. Um, you know, we just haven't quite grown up or, or we have. I'm very grown up, but I like this part of me that isn't particularly. And she's someone I can share that with who understands it. And uh, also there's a safety in exploring ideas with your friend. you know, trying to be funny because you're fairly vulnerable when you try an idea out. It can very easily go wrong or someone could not laugh or whatever. But she's someone, if you're playing, you know, it's like playing ball. You throw the ball and she does catch it and then she is going to throw it back to you. And she also, she appreciates that my strengths and I appreciate hers. So you know when it's time to concede something or you know when when to dovetail in with something else you know that she I know she's going to do an impression of Sandy Toxvig to make me laugh because (laughs) it makes me laugh so much and I'm going to do a Mick Jagger dance for her to make her laugh and I sometimes you just arbitrarily pick these things out because they're old favorites so you just you just play them like hey let me just do this for you to make you laugh it's a it's such a delight it's such a sharing and such a lovely thing to have and, and it's, again, so familiar. Jennifer and I have been friends for a long, long time. And we were at college together and we used to share a flat. And our flat was about mm, half a mile from our college. So we would walk every day up to the college and back. And we started a game where we would say, OK, from the minute our feet touch that pavement, we're not allowed to stop laughing until we get to college half a mile away. And that is actually quite quite hard to do um, but try it it's very good you don't you're not actually telling any jokes you're not having any conversation you're just going to laugh so you fake it a bit to begin with just going <laughs> <laughs> you do this together and eventually just the laughing makes you laugh and you're you're wetting yourself with hilarity by the time you got to college I was exhausted. <laughs> But it was, you know, that I've shared that with that darling woman. And I will never forget the the joys of moments like that.
1: And you had the space and time, didn't you? Because you do have the space and time. And I know you've talked recently about making your life lighter because of various things you've realized in lockdown. But of course, the yeah. light, you know, when we get successful, when we get older or when we have a family or when we get married or. God knows what. When we read more books or we watch more films, we don't realise we're adding to the weight of ourselves. And you need to be light to laugh. And the lighter you are, the more chance you have of of that happening. And so, are you gonna? Are you gonna reintroduce? Is that what you're doing? Are you reintroducing that space into your life.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually, and you know, and I, I'm aware that so many people in in the arts mm. have lost such a lot of work. I'm very mindful of that um and i did you know there was a moment at the beginning of the lockdown where the next year and a half disappeared and it was very scary cuz i'm a person who likes to plan my life and plan my quiet time around that my family time around it i like to know that my diary is full of things that i'm going to enjoy that will challenge me and suddenly all of it just dropped away and thought, oh my god how do i pay the mortgage this is very frightening and then gradually things started to flood back in and it was all fine and I was, i'm very grateful for that um we're not back to normal yet you know I'm very sad about what's going on in theaters and cinemas and everything and there are massive casualties of this and I'm not sure how long it's going to take before we're all back to normal again if there's there ever is a normal again but what I did realize throughout all of that is first of all worrying about all the calamity and the and the busyness disappearing and then I thought actually do I mind if it disappears as long as I can afford to live maybe I need to live a simpler smaller life and then I can afford it I can afford to still look after who I need to look after um and and I'll have a bit more time and yeah okay I'm at this part of my life I'm not a young actor trying to get started and I really feel for those guys but I am 63 and I am ready to not to stop living I don't want to stop living I just want to have more introspective time I do want more time for reading and I do want more time for the things that I find very nourishing and I want more time for my family I just you know as they get older they they it's not that they need you less they need you more actually uh not not to be in amongst their lives uh, exactly but to just be available for little wobbles that they have
1: yeah, and properly available as well. So
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, not just
1: time available, but depth available.
0: Yeah, that's true. And you know, when you're uh, uh, when you're me, things that you agree to might be a big tour, or you might go and do a pantomime, or you might be in a play. But it means you're leaving home for three months. You know, it's a long time to be away from your darlings. And uh, I just want to do a little bit less of that kind of stuff. I want to control it a bit more, which is why I like the writing so much.
1: Isn't it funny? You know. Just, you know, if you if you it's about it's about going to the garden centre. I think, in a way, it's about do we need a new plant? Yeah, we do. When should yeah. we go? when should we go to the garden centre? Should we all go together? Should we should we have a yes. little bite to eat you while we're there? Can make an adventure. Yeah, you
0: can make an adventure out of the smallest thing. It's it's such a delight to do that. But I, you know, I, I've told you this before, Chris. But I, you know, found a love of writing later on in my life you know much way past the time that I should have to be honest um but there it is and it places me at home in an office in my own head uh, but amongst my family and in Cornwall so I couldn't be happier really than that and it, and it and it fulfills me in a way that um you know it's not that I don't want to do the other stuff it's that I just want to balance it all a bit more I just want to measure my time out more And I I have, you know, sorry to bring it back to this, but this latest book that I've written, I have left my heart on these pages, you know. And and this book is about stuff we've been talking about earlier, about mother love. You know, it is, uh, I have written things that are very difficult and hard for me to write in there. Uh, The worst imaginable uh, crime I can imagine, which is a woman stealing another woman's child and how you can forgive something like that and is it forgivable or is it not and about the kind of mightiness of w- women um, uh, together generations of women uh, trying to make their way through life and and be good to each other that you know I'm writing about things like that which take me to quite deep places uh, but I'm very happy to mind that I'm very happy to have a deep dive in all that stuff
1: I mean, we're a couple of months into, because of you being published now, Sunday Times bestseller, straight off the bat, amazing. Um, Have you progressed on from your um, electric pencil sharpener and A4 (laughs) to an actual keyboard with something plugged on the other end of it?
0: Oh, no thank you I'm perfectly happy <laughs> perfectly happy with the line paper and the I pencil. love, love it. it I love it yeah but look no, Chris it's my handwriting oh, what yeah. goes on the page is my handwriting with graphite You know, I I like the smell of it. I like the look of it. I like rubbing out things that are wrong. I like having to think long and hard before I commit it to the page rather than constantly cutting and pasting and stuff. I mean, obviously, eventually it's got to be typed. (laughs) Eventually, I understand that. But, you know, I would really like, don't tell anyone this, but I would really like to write a novel in handwriting because I've got good handwriting. I don't think it would be hard to read. I, I wonder, and I actually, the pages I write on, um, I know I do about 250 to 300 words each page, and that is how it t- is printed. When it, <laughs> when it is typed, it's about the same amount of words, so it wouldn't make the book any thicker. Come on!
1: You sound like a little child. in wonder- And Chris, and that. Do you know what, Chris? That's how it's printed. That's how they do it. Yeah, that's how <laughs> they do it in books. And then I could do doodles down the side of the page. It'd be great. Because of you, you, um, you went to. You were gonna. Write the final draft of it anyway, March, April, and May, and that just happened to fall in the beginning of lockdown. You know, I I was quite surprised about that. I've never written a novel, obviously, not obviously, but I haven't. I don't think ever will. Um, But that drafting, you know, because I know that Richard. I've seen certain Richard Curtis scripts. Um, I think I saw one for the boat that rocked, and it was draft twenty-five. And I thought, gee, what is twenty-five drafts?
0: So so... that's probably that's a film, and producers will have got involved there. And so there will be lots of, you know, th- suddenly there'll be a draft just because they can't afford a, a boat or they can't afford. <laughs> and mind you, in that film, they absolutely had to afford a boat. But, you know, they'll say, oh, no, that they- you can't have a party scene. So write another one where yeah, you don't yeah. have that. You know, there'll be drafts for practical reasons. But certainly for me, I definitely do two, if not three drafts. And I do one and then I sit down with my very trusted editor and um and she and I and now there are two editors actually Jill and Louise and me and we sit down and we read it out loud and then I hear whether it works or not um and it's a very interesting thing to do to read out loud things that you've written I I would recommend it even with letters Chris yeah and may I recommend to you Chris Mm I don't know (laughs) how things are going in your household except for I imagine it's lovely because of Natasha being so, such a tick-tock of, of course. Gal. <laughs> yes. uh, and remember, I like her much more than I like you. Remember, yeah, I like her much um, more than I
1: like me as well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is that writing letters to your beloved yeah. is no bad thing to do. And even to post one is really good. To receive a letter in the post yeah. from your partner, who mm-hmm. you see every day, because you know, we write letters in a very different way to the way that we... Uh, speak to each other, you know, something a little bit formal that is thought through, thoughtful, and means something is massively valuable. Thing I have done that in my life, and it has helped all
1: kinds of moments. It's funny, it. well, the commit the weight of it, you know, the gravity is so much greater, isn't it?
0: It is, and you know, even sometimes to get a letter imagine if you got a letter, if you were her, that said. Uh, dear Nat, do you call her Nat? Tash. Tash. Dear Tash, oh my God, when I woke up this morning and saw the curve of your neck, and then I ha- smelt how lovely your head was when you were still asleep, and then I had to go to work, but I just want you to know that's how my day started, and I never want my days to start any other way. Love Chris or Smelly or 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 tiny dick or whatever you call yourself. Mm. Um, uh, S- smelly
1: tiny t- re- Smelly tiny dick. Smelly
0: tiny dick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to receive that letter in the post is such a treat.
1: Can you just say that again so I can write it down? <laughs> <laughs>
0: but you have to write the thing that's true for you i don't know whether she's got a lovely curve
1: could you write could you you write me some more she's got
0: very very (laughs) lovely skin i know that she's
1: got fantastic skin she's an amazing human being but she is punching above her weight and um is she no of course not um how is it how is it two months into a new book being published how how does it how's the momentum of it
0: this is a very interesting time because of course you know you tell people all about it on when it's just about to be published and i'm lucky for me it goes into the top 10 that's great uh, but this is an amazing year because lots of authors who were due to be published in march and april weren't um everything was kept on hold and now they're also published now so the the kind of race into the top 10 is this very broad, huge, it's a stampede of <laughs> uh, authors, you know, all wanting to get there for Christmas. And I understand that. Um, but it's n- normally much more um, civil affair than, than it is at the moment. And these big hitters have come along, you know, Ian Rankin and uh, um, Bernard Cornwall and, uh, and Richard Osman is having this extraordinary I know, phenomenon. I, know, I, I mean, know. all I—I I wish him nothing but the best. But I also would like him to die, um, <laughs> <laughs> just for a week, just for a week. Give us somebody a chance. I mean, it is—it is a phenomenon, and occasionally in life, th- this is what happens, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful for everyone. It's wonderful for the publishers. It's wonderful for crime writers. It's wonderful for him, you know. And it's his first novel, and it's fantastic. It's fantastic that it's happening. It just means that, you know, you have to make sure that people remember that your book is there. Um, especially a book like this for me, which uh, uh, took me a bit of courage to write this book because I'm writing about stuff that frightens me, if you like. And I think it's probably the most grown up novel that I've written so far. Although I've tried to have some levity in it, there are funny characters in it and there are funny moments in it um, because I find the, the best funnies happen in the direst moments actually uh but i've written about mm, you know identity belonging family all the stuff that matters the most to me
1: well it's a, it's a beautiful book a couple more things before we finish dawn if that's all right yeah um, filming under lockdown something special for christmas with some people who you love and respect tell us about that
0: oh yes well um what during lockdown, one of the first jobs I was supposed to do when I, uh, in in August and September was uh, a film called Beatrix and Roald, The Tale of the Curious Mouse. And it's the most beautiful film written by my friend, Abby Wilson. And uh, it's about the true moment when um, real life moment when the six year old Roald Dahl met the 60 year old Beatrix Potter. Because Roald Dahl used to love Beatrix's writing. And in fact, I think you can see that in his writing, because Beatrix's writing is actually quite dark. Um, And uh, Roald adored her. And he was having a very rough time. His dad had died, his sister had died. And the six-year-old Roald went to Beatrix Potter's house and was looking in her garden to try and find Peter Rabbit. And his mother took him there. And there was only a few moments, but he met Beatrix Potter. She was grumpy and difficult, but he met her. And she was one of his heroines. And uh, so in this drama, it's about that moment that they meet and how it changes both of their lives and where they're at in their lives when they do meet and how, how that moves on. And it's honestly so beautiful because it's infused with characters that are real people, but who are inspired by characters from Roald's writing and from Beatrix's writing and it's all very subtle but there's also animation and loads of animals and it's very Christmassy and what I really loved about making this film was it was the first uh, production uh, that went back after the lockdown because the uh, producer Elaine Cameron just refused to let it not be made she was refused to surrender And she said, we are going to make it. And I was going, you cannot be serious. No one's making anything. And she said, we are going to make it. So therefore we were tested. I don't know, I was tested about four times before we even started. We were tested every 48 hours. Um, Everybody behind the camera was in full PPE. And I'm talking about pennies, uh, visors, masks, gloves, because this was, you know, just after we come back out, we didn't know, you know, how dangerous anything could be. But everybody, however hot and uncomfortable they were, everybody was grateful to be on that set to be making such a beautiful film and to be working again and so it was a kind of uh it was a big flush of for human nature being happy together and um, you know we all had to isolate there was all kinds of restrictions and weirdness and it wasn't the normal for you had to eat quietly in your little caravan on your own you had to not share anything and whatever and, and I had a very odd moment Rob Bryden is in it he plays my husband in it and Jessica Stevenson's in it and Alison Steadman, and Nick Mohammed, and Nina Sasanya and, and loads of brilliant people and uh, Bill Bailey's in it um I, I had a weird moment with Rob who plays my husband because there, uh, there was a, a a hug written in the script and I thought oh my god no I can't how can I hug him I, I haven't hugged anyone outside of my family and even my husband who of course is working with very vulnerable people we've been very careful with the social distancing in our home and so uh you know i thought oh my god i'm going to hug rob and w- we went in for the hug just because we were directed to do it but oh god i wanted to stay there you know <laughs> i suddenly had connection with another human in a way that i hadn't been allowed to have for so long with any friends or anything and I just said to Rob, sorry about this, Rob. You just got to stay there for a while. I'm going, I need to feel this. And it was so touching, so touching. Whoa. But it's a beautiful film and it, uh, it's going to be on its, uh, on Sky
1: at Christmas. I can't wait for it. I can't believe I've not heard that story before.
0: I know. How did that happen? It was only a few minutes, apparently, but it's real. I mean, obviously, this is a drama around it, um, but but it really happened.
1: That is stunning. What a stunning story. Um, and before you go, before you go, finally, Dawn, yeah. um, what about titting about on the Nile? You've already done that, haven't you? <laughs> we
0: certainly have, although there wasn't much titting about. Well, there was titting about in in our own time. Um, when you work with Ken Branagh, you don't tit about too much when you're in front of the camera, let me tell you. Because, you know, this is a whatever it was. I, I, I might have this wrong. $64 million Hollywood film. Um, huge, amazing sets, um, uh, uh, huge, amazing actors, proper Hollywood, uh, 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 thoroughbreds, you know, really beautiful folk like Gal Gadot and Army Hammer and Annette Benning Oh, my God. Annette <laughs> Benning is something else. Let me tell you. Let me tell you, that is a that is a an extraordinary human being. I'm very glad I've met her uh, and I won't be letting her go anywhere um Sofi Letitia Wright i mean amazing film and 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 uh Ken Branagh is steering it all magnificently um as Poirot which he is so uh, supremely good at um and not only is he playing the lead part he is directing it and it's shot on proper old fashioned um what's it called 32 mil? i've i've probably got that wrong but you know mil. proper 35, 35 that's it with the uh, with the big magazines on the on the uh, cameras cameras. and um, uh, so particularly shot, very sexy Russell Brand's in it, we had a lot of fun (laughs) sitting about with him uh, improvising a few bits Um, but it, it is extraordinary that's all i can say we are very small cogs in this very beautiful big film and of course nobody knows when we can ever see it because we're not allowed back in the c- cinemas yet and 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 they'd be fools to release it until we are allowed to but um so it's it's been due to be released ever since september you know but we haven't seen it yet
1: we haven't mentioned what it what it is it's death on the nile oh oh
0: yes sorry death on the nile
1: i just wanted to ask the titting about question first before we (laughs) mentioned the title but it is you and saunders back together
0: it is and you know all all credit to kenneth brunner for having the courage to cast the two of us together and we play characters that are together um you know without us taking the piss this is normally our you know, arena to have a rollicking good time, and we were very tempted to ask him if we could just have the set for an extra week afterwards, so that we could film. You know, the Mick take of it afterwards. But uh, no, he took us very seriously. And you, you know, you work hard for Ken. He's someone you want to raise
1: your game for, definitely, yeah. because he's quite strict, isn't he? Is he more? Is he yeah. like a head teacher or headmaster kind of vibe? Uh,
0: he's like ch- cheeky, cheeky headmaster. Right. Is what he is. He's he's very. He's got a lot of humour um ken and he's very understanding about actors and he he's very good at relaxing you um um he will say things like mrs nervous is not allowed on the set <laughs> um, I um love that. I mrs love tension that. has gone out for lunch i love and that only mrs calm is here I for us that. today i love that we have you know them. he's like that but with... he's looking at you very closely, and yeah. he's look, you know, he's checking that you are feeling it, and you are performing properly, and you are in character, and you've done your preparation. So that's what I mean. But it feels strict, but it, you're in the safest, safest hands with with the very best taste.
1: That's a massive psychological um, trick that he's got there, because Dr. Steve Peters, who's this genius psychologist, written this book. Who's written this book called The Chimp Paradox. So, so what you do, you, you can have the Chimp Paradox for your kids, and what you do is you give. You give your kids alter egos, naughty names. So Noah, our 11-year-old, his nor- his naughty Noah is Dangerous Dave. And so yes. when Noah does something wrong, we it's de- well, Noah hasn't done it wrong because Noah's our beautiful son, but Dangerous Dave yeah. moved in for a while. And so you talk, oh, to, okay. you talk to Noah about Dangerous Dave. So obviously Ken has been to see Dr. Steve Peters, I would imagine, because <laughs> honestly, it re- and it really works, doesn't it? Well, it does work. I mean, I, I think what Ken's
0: done is work in theatre for his whole life and and worked out that actors you know um it, it's a thin veneer between the actor and their fear you know so he he tries to remove that and make sure that you you can relax enough to perform but that you're tense enough to to properly be doing your job wow. and and that is the fine line don't forget for any actor the word action suddenly makes all your talent fall out of your boots. <laughs> you know, and there's something about that word that makes you forget everything that a human being can normally do. And right. he doesn't even do that loudly. It's all very gentle and soft. And he, he works you into a scene by reminding you what the Nile looks like, what time was like at this particular, you know, because it's all... It, it, it is a period piece, so he reminds you of what was going on in the news, what was happening, da-da-da, your character is connected to this and this and this, you've been through that, 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 and here we go. You know, So you are bedded in by the time you work. I, if I ever directed something, I would be grateful to be a 20th of the of the remarkable director he is. He's he's an extraordinary person, Ken Brown. I love him.
1: Uh, so, so he wants you taut enough to twang but not too tight to snap
0: yeah that's right
1: that's okay. right got it exactly that right last question here we go um yes. we started off this conversation by you describing um devon and cornwall a bit like you know um in northwestern terms like um uh, the war of the roses between lancashire and um yorkshire of course yes. the war of the roses real metaphor is the war of the cream teas um can you remind me once again how you have yours and why and what the whole history of that is please
0: well how i have mine Hmm. is the right way (laughs) let's just let's just get that straight there's there for me there is there is nothing to do with choice here there's there's the cornish way or there's the foolish way okay um and you you know there's the people that are happy to carry the shame and 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 they're welcome to it way. um those are the cream firsters Uh, I am amongst the righteous people who will end up in cream tea heaven having cream teas for the rest of my life because I do it the correct way, which is scone, Mm -hmm. then butter, optional, optional. And I don't mind about that. I have no feelings about that. Then the jam, which is spread to the edge of the scone Mm -hmm. with a knife. Mm -hmm. Then the clotted cream, which is dolloped on top. You do not spread cream. You dollop it. It's the crown. It's the crowning glory. And then you eat. And, and there are some sort of idiots, idiots wrapped up in morons that think that the cream is somehow the fat, that it replaces butter or something. But I don't know if you, they, they've clearly never tasted clotted cream. It is not butter. It is something extraordinary and you need a great big dollop of it on the top. So let's, let's just leave it at that. I'm oh. a jam firster. And uh, I am in the righteous uh, army that will go to heaven because of it. Why did the divide come about? Um, um, that's an interesting. Hmm, don't know the answer to that. I don't know why, how the. I don't know how the Devonians have got it so wrong. I I don't know how they've gone so badly wrong. They must have. They must have committed sins against
1: their souls somewhere along the line. I don't know. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Listen, Dawn, thank you so much for your time because that's a long time you've spent with me. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, oh, and I appreciate it. It's been great fun, great fun, Chris. Lovely to talk to you. Isn't it interesting as we're growing up? Yeah, it's got. We've on. talked to each other all the way through being silly twits when we were young to being adults. We're still still silly twits, but who know a bit more. Yeah, but you're
1: getting even nicer. She's really getting on my nerves,
0: <laughs> aren't you? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh well, it's lovely to know that your special nickname is small smelly willy. Tiny smelly um, dick. I will not. I will not forget that.
1: <laughs> well, hang on a minute. Is it tiny smelly dick or small smelly willy? I like the either. I like either, the latter. It's got a better ring to. It. Do. You,
0: we know you'll come running when you're called for your tea. Small smelly yeah. willy. And now we know. How are going to have here. it? Jam okay. first yeah, bye. For you.
1: Thank you. ta <laughs> Bye. not get too much of a good thing. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> The amazing and ultimately always very naughty, very cheeky Dawn French on how to. Wild. This has been episode twenty-eight. If you liked it, please rate and review it, and do subscribe because all that helps loads. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye.